So our scripture lesson today, as we work our way through the book of Exodus, is Exodus chapter 17. I invite you to follow along. I'll be reading from the uh, ESV version. version. And um, if you don't have a Bible with you, please feel free to use one of the red pew Bibles in front of you. Again, Exodus chapter 17. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff which with you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it. And the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. And because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called it the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, as we turn now to your word, I pray that you would speak through it to us, that you would be growing us in understanding and obedience to you. You would be with all of us sinners as we sit under its teachings, and be with me, a sinner, as I seek to proclaim it. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we are going to jump right into it this morning, but this, there are... In the Bible, these things I think that we as Christians feel tensions about. These truths we believe that we feel kind of caught between struggling to know how to hold them together. Whether that's like truth and love, or whether that's like God's grace and justice. Or whether, as these stories both provoked me to reflect on, the tension between the fact that we are called to do stuff as Christians and the fact that God is at work in the world, between God's work and our works. 
And so what I want us to do this morning is just jump into these stories and talk about two truths that kind of represent the two sides of what Scripture calls us to recognize on that topic. Two sides of the same coin about God's work and ours. So let's just jump into it. First, the, the first side that this story reminds us of is that God doesn't need us. God doesn't need us. In many ways, this whole section of Exodus, ever since before they crossed the Red Sea, is stories about God rescuing and caring for Israel. And in every one of them, it's kind of stressing the point that Israel cannot provide for itself. When the Red Sea parts, that is God. When the bitter waters become drinkable, it's God. When manna falls from heaven, it's God. And here, it's the same thing. Take the first story. Israel needs water. And their response is, again, unsurprising. The whole Israelite community, it says, set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. And they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And that is a familiar theme in these stories. And it's supposed to kind of build in our sense of just like, okay, like God has provided for you over and over Why don't you instead come and pray to him and ask him to provide again? But they come to Moses and complain against God, and God provides water from a rock. Here's how God describes it. He says, I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb, strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses strikes the rock and water comes out, but God stresses, he says, I'm standing before you in front of this rock. And it's clear that he's, you know, saying that to stress that he's the one bringing forth this water. Otherwise, when you just hit rocks with sticks, right, water doesn't come out. And then the same theme is touched on in our second story. The Amalekites come out to fight with Israel, and Joshua does battle with them, and Moses stands on a hill above the battlefield. And we read, it says, Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. And then up on that hill, here's what happens. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. And again, the point here is that what matters is the working of God, right? That staff that Moses uses over and over represents God's power and God's presence And the thing that makes the difference in the battle is whether Moses is holding God's staff up over his head in the sign of God's presence and power moving or not. So God's the one ultimately fighting the battle. And that's how God describes it. After the battle, he curses the Amalekites. And and this is how God expresses it. He says, because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to. To generation. So he pictures their attack on Israel as an attack on him, and his promise is that he is somehow going to be at war with them as a consequence. Here's why we have to start with this side, with the God doesn't need us side. The foundational truth of Scripture is that God is all powerful and rules all things and works all things according to his will and does not need us for anything. These stories all sound that theme, and it echoes over and over as you move forward through the Bible. For instance, just a little bit later in Exodus, we'll get there, but Israel has worshipped the golden calf and rebelled against God. 
And here's how God expresses his judgment. He says, Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation, he says to Moses. Which is to say, God's, and God turns in his grace from that anger, but God's saying, I could just turn you into a great nation, Moses, and we would be fine, right? God does not need Israel to carry forth his purposes. Jesus stresses that same theme in his day, talking to people with a similar attitude. He says, And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Which is to say, we say, we're, you know, God needs us. We're his people. He needs us to do stuff in the world. And Jesus is saying, out of these rocks, God could make people for himself to work in the world. I don't know mechanically how that works, but <laughs> Jesus says it, so it's true. Or here is Paul saying the same thing. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. God does not need us. We need him. That is the foundational truth that scripture would proclaim. Now again, there is more to say, right? This is one side of the two sides of it. And we're going to get there in a minute because we need the other side too. But first, we need to just camp on that reality, because if we don't appreciate that, then we often end up getting wrong ideas about the other side. We are not necessary to God. God did not have to create us. That is the place we should start. The world and human beings, God did not have to make us. Sometimes people talk as if he did. They talk about God's love as if, like, well, God is love, and he really needed some people to love, and so he just had to make us because otherwise he wouldn't have had anyone to love. The problem with that is that that's not what the Bible says. In Scripture, God is triune. He's this Father and Son and Holy Spirit in relationship with each other, in perfect love and community with each other, and he doesn't need anything outside of himself in order to embody his love. Now, God did create us, and he delights in us, but it's important to recognize that he did not create us out of necessity. God did not make the world for the reason that, like, a lonely boy finds a girlfriend, right? He was not just like, man, I'm so bored in heaven, watching Netflix, playing video games. I just really need something more than this, and so I'm going to make the world to complete me. God rather made the world because... Because of why, like, an artist makes a painting or writes a song, right? There's a, a joy and gladness in him that spills out into the world. And he delights in the world because it's a showing forth of that joy and goodness. But he doesn't need it to be complete. He didn't have to create us. And he doesn't have to save us. That is also important to recognize. He is kind and gracious to us, but not out of necessity. Um, God is sufficient in himself, and he could have, sort of like he says to Israel in, in, in Exodus there, when Adam and Eve sinned, it could have just been like, cool, let's just start this thing over and hit the reset button. I think we sometimes talk um, as if God has to save us because we talk about things like his grace as if they're these forces that sit outside of God and make him act a certain way. Um, but that's not the way scripture pictures it. God is free. We talk about free will sometimes. You'll hear people talk about that. And 
That's true, and, you know, humans have this sort of free will, but even more than humanity, God is the ultimate free being in the universe. And so when we say he's gracious, we're not saying he was forced to save us. We're saying that he chose to. He didn't have to save us, and he doesn't need us now to carry out his purposes. God is not served by human hands, like the Apostle Paul said in um, Acts We could all, tomorrow, conspire together and decide to stop following him and stop doing what he commands and stop working for him, and God would just go save another group of people and start working through them instead. He doesn't need us. And actually, there's something really interesting, I think, that illustrates the way we get confused about that from our story this morning. Um, If you read the book of Numbers, in chapter 20, There's a very similar story to this one. You can go read through it later, but the people are thirsty, and Moses comes before this rock, and um, and he strikes it, and water comes out. But that time, God, in that story, God does not tell Moses to strike the rock, and he hits it twice anyway, and water comes out, but then God condemns Moses for striking it, and that's actually one of the reasons that he doesn't enter the promised land. And if you poke around a little bit online, you're going to hear the idea that these two stories contradict each other because supposedly they're different versions of the same events. But the issue with that is that within the books of Exodus and Numbers, where those two stories happen, they are not two accounts of the same story, but they're two different events. They do both happen at the same place, but they happen at different times. Um, In Exodus, it happens right after Israel crosses the Red Sea. In Numbers, Numbers does not have as clear of a dating, but it's, it's much later. It's after the tabernacle has been built and Aaron has died and things. Probably it happens right at the end of Israel's wilderness wandering, 40 years later. And so there are these two similar stories because it's kind of making the point that this generation and that generation 40 years later both are prone to exactly the same failures. But when you recognize that, you actually start to see something deep about Moses' sin. Right? So then what happens is that this, in this story that we read this morning, Moses comes to God, and God says, I will stand before you, strike the rock, and water will come out. And he does it, and water comes. And then Moses comes to this same rock 40 years later, and God tells him not to strike the rock, but Moses does it anyway. Why? Well, probably because Moses is starting, he's starting to believe his own hype. He's starting to get confused about where the water is coming from. Right? If he trusted God, that's how God frames it. When God responds to this act, he says in Numbers 20, it's, he says, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. Which is to say that while the root issue is that they didn't treat God as holy, the reason is that they did not trust him. Moses has started to trust in his own power. He started to think, maybe it's my magic staff. Maybe it's my supernatural powers that are doing this. He's not recognizing that God does not need him to provide for his people. God doesn't need us. That's one side of it. And again, in just a minute, we'll talk about the other side. But let me just say, that truth on its own actually gives us some really good things to, there's good reasons we need to believe that. One, that should just be a huge relief to us. (laughs) Because our shoulders are not strong enough to bear the weight of the universe. Our arms are not strong enough to carry forward God's mission to completion 
in the world. We are imperfect, faltering, limited, sinful people. And if this thing depended on us, we would be in a world of trouble. And second, that fact that God doesn't need us is actually foundational to help us understand God's love. The thing about love is that um, it sounds good to us when we think, oh, God, God, you know, is loving and he has to have something to love and so he had to create us. But in that kind of story where God needs us, what we end up doing is diminishing God's love. Because he's using us to fulfill some need, some deficiency he has in himself. You think about human love, the deep, you know, for, to have human affection and love work best, it works best when two people come to each other fulfilled and whole in themselves, and then delight in and offer themselves to the other. When love is instead about using someone to fill some lack that I have within myself, right, that's how you create Codependence, that's how you create unhealthy patterns. God, Scripture says, does not need us, but nonetheless he chose to create us. He does not need us, but nonetheless he chose to save us. He does not need us, but nonetheless he is continuing to use us to work beauty and glory in the world. That should excite us and encourage us that we are loved simply because God chose to love us. So God doesn't need us. We have to understand that first. But like we said, there's another side to this too, right? God does not need us, but God does use us. God does use us to accomplish his purposes in the world. In both of our stories, human action is involved. God did not tell Moses to just walk up to the rock and see what happens, right? He does give him these specific instructions. He tells Moses, go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go, and I will stand before you at the rock and strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. Moses is called to undertake these actions by God. And while his actions in themselves are not the thing that causes the water to flow, that is God, his actions are the means through which God chooses to work. It's the same thing in the second story. On the one hand, God's making clear that it is his presence that makes the difference. But but at the same time, it stresses that there's things human beings are doing. First, that Moses is doing by holding the staff in the air. Which, in fact, it's striking how his arms get tired and he needs the help of these other leaders who are also working to help this come about. So in verse 12, when Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. All right, and then Israel, that's happening, but Israel also has to fight, right? In fact, when it sums up the story, right after that, it says... This is how Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. This is the story of how Joshua defeated the Amalekites, it says. One verse after talking about how what made the difference in the battle was whether the staff of God was raised in the air or not. I mean, it's worth thinking about this from Joshua's perspective, right? The battle records, the, 
this battle is recorded in the way the Bible kind of does. It's just in the battle happened way. But you imagine him. He is exhausted at the end of this. His body is aching from fighting all day. And his arm is worn out from swinging a sword. And he's probably covered in mud and sweat and blood, right? You don't look at this guy and think, oh yeah, he didn't do anything. Joshua poured himself out in this fight. But he would also be the first person to say that God is the one who ultimately was at work. God did not need Joshua, and that's why after the day of fighting, he's given the honor. It says that Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner, which is to say it's the Lord that goes before me and wins the victory. So here's what we need to understand from that. We tend to divide the world up like this. We tend to divide the world into stuff that we do and stuff that God does, as if those are two separate categories. These are the things where I work, And I am responsible for them, and I get the credit. And then these are the things that God does, and I'm not involved in that, and God is responsible for that, and God gets the credit. But that is not how Scripture views things. Instead, it views, on the one hand, God as working in all things. Every event he is working in. In some of those things, he's working apart from us, That's the true distinction. There are times that God moves in the world just by his own power apart from us. But most of the time, he's working through us, alongside and through our actions. And so that means that while that's true, it's not the case that we don't have to do things. That's the other mistake we can make. To say that God works through us does not mean that we aren't at the same time working. In fact, what we're called to do is, like Joshua, to go out and exhaust ourselves in that fight for the Lord, even though we recognize that it's him who's making the difference. Let me try to explain that a different way, okay? Let's zoom out from this story and talk about our salvation. All of us as Christians experience this process of salvation, of God working in our lives. And let's talk about how God's work and our work work in that. To do that, I'm going to use a couple of theological words. So don't freak out because I'm going to put them up here now. But we're going to define them in just a minute, right? Um, This is what theologians call the order of salvation. It's based off of Romans 8. And it's this sort of—it's the set of things Scripture talks about that describes this process of salvation we all experience. So first, just to walk through and describe that— So first, Scripture talks about how we're foreknown and predestined even before time. God knew us and loved us and decided to save us. And then we are called, which is to say that we hear the gospel and the Spirit works in our hearts to draw us towards belief. And we are regenerated. We are given new life. We are given new birth. The Bible uses different words to describe that, but it means that our hearts that are hard and dead— are suddenly made soft and alive by God's Spirit. And then we repent and have faith. We grieve our sin and trust in Jesus for salvation. And then we're justified. We are given right relationship with God. We are his sons and daughters. And our sins are covered. And then we are being sanctified, which is to say God is working in us right now to grow us more and more like Jesus. And one day we will be glorified. When Jesus returns and our bodies are raised imperishable and we're free from sin and we're made like him. 
That's the process that we are all in the middle of in salvation. Like I said, Romans 8 lays that out. All right. Now, here's why I put that list up there. Because on the one hand, in Scripture, God is spoken of as doing all of those things. Each of those things at different points are talked of as things God does. Um, By his power, he chose us and calls us and gives us new birth. Faith and repentance, it talks about, as a gift of God. Justification is something that God works for us. Sanctification is something God is working in us, and he will glorify us someday. At the same time, we also do some of those things in Scripture. Not all of them, right? I don't, like, predestine or regenerate myself or something. But um, we do have faith and repent. Those are actions that we undertake. And actions are also involved in sanctification. We labor and strive to become more like Jesus. And what's happening in those things is that both God's work and our work are true at the same time. They're like layered on top of each other, or they're mingled with each other in such a way that to really appreciate what's going on, we have to talk about both of them. Here's the Bible describes that kind of dual reality a couple of times. Take this from the Apostle Paul in his first letter to the Corinthians. He says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me is not in vain. Now, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was within me. So he's saying, I worked harder than than anyone, but it was God's grace working in me. You, You see how he's trying to express both those things at once. Or again in Colossians, he says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So Paul is toiling and struggling, but it's also God's power that's being worked in him. Here is the simplest way I know to parse all of that. When we think about things like repentance and faith and our sanctification, there is stuff that we have to do. There are actions that we have to take and that we have to keep on taking over the course of our lives. In the Christian life, it's going to feel like toil and struggle sometimes, right? To, to seek to be like Jesus, to seek to struggle against sin, to be repenting and trying to faith, tr- to trust in God. And importantly, if we are not taking those actions, God is not working them in us. That's kind of the hard side of this, right? We cannot not do those things ourselves and say, oh, obviously God must be doing them. But if we are doing those things, then it is because God is working in us. And we ought to put our hope and our thanksgiving in that. Or think about it like this. Think about a light bulb, right? If a light bulb is shining, you know that there's electricity behind it, right? You know that there's power coming into it from somewhere else. And the light bulb is not going to shine if that power isn't there working in it. But at the same time, if the light bulb is not shining, you cannot assume that the electricity is there, right? The light bulb itself has to be giving off light, and that is the evidence— of the fact that the power is at work within it. The existence of that power is demonstrated by its shining light. All right, now I know that's a lot of ground to cover, but that's the reality of it. So we are called to work and work hard and recognize that God is at work in us as we do. Let's then, as we finish up, talk about why that matters to us. I think there's at least two wrong ideas that we have that this corrects. Two wrong ideas that affect how we relate with God. The first wrong idea 
is what I'm going to call the let go and let God mistake. And I apologize, you know, you guys have probably seen this somewhere, and some of us might have it in our houses. And listen, in one sense, this is a fine and good thing to say, right? If by let go and let God, what we mean is that we're prone to anxiety and trying to control everything, and that we need to recognize that God is in control and trust in him, that's great. I am not saying you have to, like, take that down off your wall, okay? But there is another sense in which I think many of us take that. Um, We have this idea that when we are working hard, when we are struggling, when we're toiling, that that somehow means that God isn't at work. Our expectation is that if God is moving, then we won't have to work at it. That God only shows up in miraculous and easy and instantaneous things. You think about like, like when I see some sin in my heart or some area that I want to work on changing, right? What is my prayer? What is the prayer that I think all of us probably pray? It's, Lord, take this thing away from me. Make it stop. Make it stop being hard. Make me stop struggling with it. Just fix it, Lord. And we imagine in that that if God is working, (laughs) then that's how it would look. That I wouldn't have to wrestle with temptation anymore. That I wouldn't have to struggle in my, in my life anymore because God would just take it away. But the issue with that is that the normal way that God works in the world is through our hard work and struggle. Think back to the way Paul put it again from Colossians. He says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul is not letting go, right? He is bearing down and seeking to pursue Jesus, but he's recognizing in that that it is God who is working in him with his power and strength. Or you think about, we mentioned earlier that idea of sanctification, that all of us are in the middle of this process of being made more like Jesus day by day. We're to be seeking to grow and be more like him. Sanctification is hard, (laughs) We will spend our whole lives working at it, and we still will not have arrived. Here is what the process of sanctification normally feels like. You see some area in your heart that's sinful and you want to change, and so you commit yourself to changing, and you seek to change, and you succeed for a little while, and then you fail. And then um, you do that, and you repent of it, and you get up, and you commit yourself again to changing. And you seek to change, and you succeed for a little while, and then you fail. And often you do that for months or years of your life. And um, maybe over that time, you do start to see growth. Maybe the success lasts a little longer. Maybe the, the failures, there's bigger gaps between them. And, and maybe at some point you even reach a point where you have largely reached a point where you've triumphed over that particular area of struggle. But by that point, if you're being sanctified, there's like 50 more things that you've realized that you need to grow in and work on. That process, that constant years-long fight, that is what it feels like for God to powerfully work in us. It is not a sign of the absence of God's working in us. Rather, it's the evidence that he is moving. One other note about that is that that should also make us realize there is this dangerous way of thinking that can creep into Christianity. Because we sometimes focus on the opposite. We assume that because God works, because God is saving us by his grace, then that means that it's okay that we aren't working. 
if we can be discouraged because we're working hard, we can also take a false sort of assurance, well, we aren't trying at all. Um, We are not putting our faith in Jesus. We are not seeking to repent from sin. We are not seeking to be sanctified. And we say, that doesn't matter. Um, I'm just going to go on living in sin because, you know, Jesus is going to take care of it. Scripture does say that we are saved by God's grace alone. But it also says that the main evidence of God's work in our lives is our working. Not our perfection, right? That's something, do not hear that at all. Um, We will fail and fall, but if we are not in any way doing the repenting and trusting and seeking to grow like Jesus, then we can't presume upon God's work. Think about that light bulb again. If it isn't shining, it could be that there's still electricity there, right? It could be that there's some malfunction right now in the bulb, and, um, and if that was fixed, that it would shine. But I cannot assume that the electricity is there, because the normal evidence of that is going to be that it's giving off light. That's a hard truth, and that is why, um, as much as that's an error that we need to safeguard against, there's another error, too. Another side of it that I think this tension speaks to. And that is that we can also get the wrong idea of putting works before grace. Putting works before grace. If you look back at that order of salvation that we talked about earlier, there are parts of it that do involve our actions. And what we've been saying is that we can't presume on being a part of that process if we're not undertaking those acts of repentance and faith. However... The thing to recognize is that all of those acts rest on the prior work of God. First, in the sense that God's always moving first. He's calling us. He's giving us new birth. He's drawing us to himself before we even have faith and trust in him. He's forgiving our sins even before we've grown to be like Jesus. And even in those events, our faith and repentance and our sanctification, right, are caused because God is moving in us and giving us the power and working. And so it's important for us to realize that if we are overcoming sin, if we are doing that work, that should encourage our hearts in the knowledge that God is graciously saving and working in us. That should do two things for us as we live as Christians. One is that it should give us a hope and a confidence in the middle of our struggle. We will still have to fight. It will be hard and there will be days of discouragement and pain But we can have hope in the fact that because grace is the thing, God's work is the thing that underlies our works, there is a real hope for victory. If you think back to that battle against the Amalekites, if you're an Israelite down there on the battlefield, you are fighting and it's scary and you're struggling and there are moments of success and moments where you feel like you're being beaten back. But the hope you have is that Moses is up there on that mountain behind you holding the staff of God in the air, and God is powerfully moving on that field to bring you to victory. We should have a hope and confidence in God's work. And then we should also recognize that it's that grace in God's work that motivates our work. We described that process of sanctification a minute ago, but I kind of left out an important step. Here is, Christianly, how that process looks. We see some sin and decide to seek to battle against it, and we succeed for a little while, and we fail, and we repent and recognize that sin, and in that moment we encounter the grace of Jesus Christ. 
We are nourished and ministered to by the fact that even though we've just failed, God loves us and has saved us and is at work in us and is drawing us to himself. And as we experience that, that is the thing that then motivates us to get up and fight again. It is that truth that we are already loved uh, by God, that 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 is the, the foundation that we have fallen back on, that then encourages our hearts and gives us the strength to stand up and fight again. There's actually a deep note of that grace in our story that is easy to miss. We've talked before about the way that the Old Testament is full of these hints and pictures that over time get given more and more meaning as the story unfolds. And there's one of those little hints in our passage. Go back one more time to the instructions God gives Moses at the rock. He says, I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb, strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. There's something actually really striking about that image, right? What God is saying is, here's the deal, Moses. You are here, and the rock is here, and I'm in between you. Now take your staff and hit the rock. It's as if God himself is having Moses strike him, and that through his being struck, this water flows. And again, that is just a hint in itself, right? Until you see the story unfold, you don't appreciate the power of that. But as that story unfolds, and as we start to recognize that God himself is working our salvation by entering into our world in Jesus, and by ultimately being struck and suffering for our salvation, it starts to mean more. Which is why the Apostle Paul makes clear that when we look back on this, we're to recognize that this is a sign of God's work in Jesus. Describing Israel here, he says, they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Which is to say that in this water from the rock, what God is reminding Israel of is the streams of his grace. That by giving them this water that they could never secure on their own, he's giving them a picture of the way that he sustains and cares for them. So when we think about that tension, we are called to work. Or if I can shift the imagery a little, Christianity is a journey that we have to take steps on. We cannot just sit at home. We cannot seek, you know, we cannot just say, I'm not going to move forward and say that we're on the journey. It is a hard journey. And the sun is hot. And the days are long, and Christianity, as we walk forward in that journey, is going to give us calluses and blisters and sore legs. But the thing to recognize is that as we journey forward, God is the ground beneath our feet, and he is the strength in our limbs that is helping us to move, and he is nourishing us in Jesus Christ, giving us his grace and love. Because it is in that, in that work of Christ, that we are sustained on the way. Let's pray. Father, I give you thanks that you are at work in the world. and pray that we would make that our hope. That you are at work in us. And that that would be an encouragement to our hearts. And I pray that we might, seeing that work you are doing, pour ourselves out in chasing after Jesus. Seeking to love those you have called us to love. And serve this world that you have made. Pray all of these things in his great name. Amen.